It's Russian dolls all the way down. Guys. Hello, Mr. Downey. Go on YouTube. That sounds very dangerous. Do a YouTube search for inside interpreting. Fine. Okay. If you must. I mean, the whole situation sounds dangerous. Inside. Oh, that's your thing. Oh, that's fine. We'll get together at some point again. <gasps> and my revenge will be swift and painful. <gasps> Accidents happen all the time. I think you tried last year and then I talked you out of it. <laughs> so we always had like a chopstick next to every outlet and you could just like do that and then plug your stuff in. That's totally safe, I'm sure. That is not good. The Alexes are two different people. I mean, most of the time at least. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. Our episodes might do that too, since they are really under now. But here we go. And we've been hearing uh, stories of people listening to Troublesome Terps even during their gym sessions. So we figured the longer our episodes are, the better it is for your fitness. Or maybe not. All we can say is that our listeners must have excellent endurance. So I'll start right out, the, out of the blocks by introducing my co-hosts for yet another heart-racing episode. First off, here's a gentleman who assures me that he once did a single Press up or push up if you're on the other side of the pond. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jonathan Downey, PhD. Thank you. It's good to be back on the show. It's good to, to have a bit of fun with my friends again. I, I did manage to do a press up once, but then I realized the exercise is hard, so I gave up. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> also with us once again, uh, the Munich man who makes everyone sit up and listen and who probably does a lot of sit ups as well when he's in the gym, Alex Gansmeyer. <laughs> I was just going to say, oh my God, maybe I should sit up for once. <laughs> but um, yeah. Hi, everybody. Hello. It's nice to be back. Today, we have a really special show. We've had our year in review. We've talked about the past, but we thought it'd be really good to have a chat about the future and where we see the future of interpreting going. We're not going to talk a lot about technology because we've covered that, but we're going to talk about the trends and where we think interpreters should be concentrating their effort in the future. Market realities and where we see the future going. A market reality for me, for, for me is when I graduated you could be a generalist interpreter and it would be totally fine. Like you, you'd be a conference interpreter, but you know, if someone said, can you do, you'd always say yes. So like me, basically. <laughs> yeah. But whereas now freelancing, I'm realizing that just to get work, I'm having to concentrate on areas. Specialization. Um, it, yeah. And it, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be specialization in this area. Like, you know, you don't have to be a neuro specialist or a farmer specialist, although if you're a farmer specialist, you can basically name your price. But you do have to have like a, a set group of clients that you try to get. If you can't name that group, hmm. you've had it nowadays. You really have. Yeah. I don't know. Are you finding the same in Germany, Alex, or have you got enough work that people don't really need to worry about that? I mean, I can only speak for, for the Munich market, really, and also only just for English. But, I mean, specializations help, but they're not necessarily, they don't make or break your business, I would say. Um, 
I think it's it's it depends on 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 the type of things that you do. Like for example, if you do medical, like you should be specialized in that. If you do legal, like you should be specialized in that because those aren't things that you can just kind of you know whip out. But there's so much there are so many conferences that are relatively and this is kind of like a chicken egg situation because I mean I do a lot of IT, I do a lot of finance. I find that there are a lot of IT and finance type conferences out there and oftentimes there are those two kind of intermingle in various ways. And I feel like they're kind of run of the mill conferences a lot of the times. You know, I find that you don't need a lot of preparation for that because the topics always repeat. Um, now you could obviously make the argument that I've done it so many times that that's become a specialization, mm. like a specialty. But um, I don't know. I mean, there's a big push at the moment by, I mean, the VKD did it, IEG Germany did it. Like they've all introduced specialties in their online searches. And also there was another um, interpreting search portal created by one of the IEC Germany members like it was her own personal private initiative she's got only IEC Germany colleagues on there and they all were really adamant about having specialties on there because they all felt it was very important there was also a market research study that's um, done by IEC and Falkadi that pretty much proved that specialties are very important to the customer but I find that problematic because I think that the questions were kind of leading <laughs> No, you know, like if you yeah, if you yeah, ask okay. if you ask a if you ask a customer like, do you find it important whether or not the interpreter knows about the topic of your conference? Like, there's no no like nobody's gonna say no. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I'm fine if you know what I mean. So could just be yeah, anyone I, I, I find, interpreter. Yeah, yeah, I find that to be so so reliable. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, but what about what about translation? I don't know if it if it's ever been true or ever been possible really for an interpreter to do hundred percent interpreting. I mean, institutional markets aside, um, is that has that has that changed? Do you see that changing? That that people maybe are more willing to do translation in their specialty, maybe in the field of specialization. No. <laughs> well, it, next the question. <laughs> In the UK, I think most interpreters that I know, in fact, all of the interpreters I know in the UK are interpreters and. Maybe in London that's different, but outside of London, everyone's an interpreter and. And so they're either interpreter and lecturer, interpreter and researcher, interpreter and writer, interpreter and teacher. Mm. And now I would like to pretend that I see that going away in the near future. And I think the Scottish government, this is why I would love to get Nicola Sturgeon on, um, or Ivan McKee. Nicola, call us. You know where to find us. If the Scottish government are as good as their word in their encouragement for exporting, I would say that there could be enough work for interpreters to be interpreters and or uh, interpreters on their own, or at least two or three full-time consultant interpreters who just do consultancy. Mm -hmm. But my, def my definition of consultancy and the classical definition definition of being a consultant interpreter are two very different things. Yeah. So, so for me, a consultant interpreter isn't just the person who decides who's in the team. It's the person that the client can call into a board meeting and say, this is what we're trying to do. This is the market we're trying to reach. How do we take care of the language side of it? And the consultant interpreter is trained enough and knows enough of the research in the field to go, here's how you do it. Mm. Here's the results you can expect. That's what I call a consultant. And I realize at the moment there aren't a huge amount of people, there are a huge amount of people who could give that advice based on tradition. But there aren't a huge amount of people who could give that advice based on solid science. 
And there is some solid science that for me, if you're a consultant and the client's going to say, well, we're going to treat you like one, there's some solid science that you really need to know. Such as? <laughs> such, as um, such as I think we need to understand clientees. So we need to know we need to know the science behind client we need to know the the research behind client expectations. We need to know the, the research behind what clients are actually doing when they're buying an interpreter in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we so I would say client expectation, we need to know about what clients are doing with events. And we also need to know bits and pieces the bits and pieces there are about the difference between different ways of delivering interpreting. So, for instance, I think it's perfectly valid if a client says, okay, we're doing a a presentation to a German, we're going to Germany, we're doing a presentation to a German audience, Mm. and we want an interpreter. I think it's perfectly valid for the consultant to sit down and work out, should we put the interpreter on stage or should we put them in the booth? And to kind of have, there's not a strict science to it, I think you should have a rough feel of when it's going to work better each way and let's not default to the booth just because that's how we've always done it. If we can save the client, 1500 quid and still get a, a good result go for it hmm. that's controversial jonathan you realize that yeah but also i feel like i feel like um i feel like that's something else than what you said in the first go around because you said that you can call the interpreter in into the board meeting and say we want to go into this country we have these types of targets how do we make it happen and then the interpreter would actually consult them on it and i feel like what you just now said i would go along with i would agree uh, mostly with that but the first part i didn't agree with because I don't, I don't think that was, I don't think that would be inter- the interpreter's job to like go into the board meeting and say, okay, we want to like expand to the German market. We want like a fifteen percent revenue growth in the German market. How do we make it happen language-wise? Go, and then you give them the results. Like I don't know how we would do that, and I don't know if that's our job. So, so for instance, if if a client, so what I'm thinking is, you there's a whole buying process that I'm learning about from the events industry. And if a client says, okay. Um, I, I was listening to a guy talking about, you know, we've got this product, we're taking it to, I think it was in, in his case, Sweden. And he would know, regu- uh, they would have done the research to say, we need to fulfill this regulation, that regulation, and we want to do a launch in Swedish. For me, a consultant interpreter should know enough to say, okay, I know how to find you the, the translators that you need to deliver that. Okay, you want to de- deliver an event in Swedish. Uh, I don't just know two Swedish interpreters, I know who the local, who the, who the good local um, equipment suppliers are. I also know enough about how meetings work and how people work to go, well, okay, this kind of meeting, if you're doing this lunch, put the interpreter on stage. Or you're doing it this way, right, let's go for the booth. But let's, you know, knowing enough about how meetings work to understand how interpreting plugs in so we can be involved very early in the meeting, what they call the meeting design process. Because often we're called like two weeks before or a month before. Mm. And then you look at the agenda and you go, they really haven't had an expert look at this. Classic ones like, oh, look, the finance talks at half past four in the afternoon. That's going <laughs> to go down great. Um, or things like, you know, we've, we've got a dignitary and we've decided to open up the conference with a dignitary who's about as boring as dishwater. Okay, you know, we know enough about how conference works from the booth that we could sit with the, the meeting design people and say, you know, like, let's have a talk about how how this works mm. and it is still interpreting but it's just understanding you know helping them get the interpreting that works for them i mean i would agree with you that it's important to be involved in the process as early as, as possible and i think it's probably easier if you have like a long-standing client that you've been working with for a couple of years already or maybe even longer 
and then they know to bring you in, you know, as soon as possible. But I think all the things that you described, at least from my very limited knowledge of the German market, I would say probably consulting consultant interpreters already do, no? Yeah, I would hope so. Pretty, pretty much. I mean, the whole, I know the people, I know the, I, I can make the meeting work and all that. But I don't know, again, like, I, I kind of agree with most of what you just said, but then the whole part where you said that we can help them design the meeting. I mean, that's, again, not really our job, right? Because if the client wants the meeting to have a certain feel to it, mm. wants to start with the most boring keynote speaker, wants to have the finance talk at 4.30 in the afternoon, that is a prerogative. That's, yeah, they're the client. And I wouldn't, I don't think it would be in my responsibility or in my, how should I say it? I, I feel like I would be massively overstepping if I told the client, listen, this guy is boring. Don't start with him or don't put the finance talk in the afternoon. I feel like I would be massively I like overstepping. That you, I like that you use the word responsibility. <laughs> oh, I, That's I, well, my job. It's not my job. Well, or is it, you know? It, 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 depends. So. it depends what the clients asked you to do. And a lot of people would say, you know, it's not the interpreter's job to say to businesses, you know, here's the play, here's why you need an interpreter, here's where to find them. And I'm like, no, to me, that's called marketing. Um, you know, yeah, we, totally. we, we, can, we can complain about clients messing up. Um, and, you know, I would never say to the client, you made a stupid decision. But if a client says to me, can you come into this meeting design discussion early on mm. you know you know international meetings because you've been there we'd love to hear your opinion i think that's a great place for the interpreter to be but has that happened it's not happened yet but i think it's a trend that i could see i could see it coming because if we are willing to put ourselves out there and so for instance um when you get every government now does like meetings on encouraging people to export Say if you've got an interpreter there and you start building an, uh, a relationship with people, one of the things we were talking about was why don't they put me, they have these panels where, you know, me, um, they get people who are about to export who throw questions at the panel. She's like, if we put you on a panel at an export forum, then they would be able to ask you questions about the language side of, of doing business. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I think, you know, and we know the questions they're going to ask, you know, where do you find an interpreter? How do you know you found a good one? Do I need to bother with it anyway? They're not difficult questions, but if you start asking the, e if you start being able to answer the easy questions on their turf, you suddenly get the opportunity to go, well, if you know about finding interpreters, do you know about how, you know, things like, um, I was saying one of my frustrations was I mm. did a job for a very important client and it wasn't until they set up the room that they realized that they hadn't taken into account the size of the boots. So yeah. they, had, they, they had to pay several thousand pounds extra to set up a video link when had they pulled in an interpreter early on, they could have gone, we're thinking of putting it in this room and they, the consultant could have gone, you want two people in there or is it sitting on each other's knees? <laughs> you know, well, nicer than that, but a consultant interpreter could have said, well, you can have it in that room, but if you have it in that room, it will cost you 5,000 extra because you've got to set up a video link. Um, and they said, well, what kind of room do we need? Well, you need da 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 Oh, right, okay, we'll put it next door. And literally, it's these little decisions which, you know, easy enough for an interpreter to walk into a room and go, that's a cupboard. <laughs> you know, and, and think in their heads, how do I diplomatically say to clients, have you thought of moving it next door? Those are little tiny things. The client can still book the, the original room if they want, but they're little tiny things that get a client a better result but they wouldn't have noticed because they're not used to thinking that way. Hmm. So, I mean, it's things, things that we take for granted, like 
does this room have reliable aircon and a reliable heating system? Why is that important? No, all of those things, once again, are fine. Like, I completely agree with the yeah. whole situation and the room size and all that. And it's actually happened to me a few times that I've actually brought it up and the client didn't hadn't thought of it. But again, the, the idea that they would put us on a panel to answer questions for export people, I don't think that would go over well because they don't want the easy answers. Like, they don't want, they, they're not going to ask you the easy questions. They usually come to these sorts of events, even if they're export oriented, because they want hard hitting facts, facts and figures. They usually want to network with people. And we are so very far down the food chain and so very far down the thought process that they wouldn't, I, I, I don't know, if they put, actually put you on one of those, those forums, one of those panels, I actually don't think you would get any questions from the audience. Like, I literally think that they wouldn't bother asking you. Well, it, it, it surprised me because I thought, I, I thought that, and I've been surprised at how much when we're in the room, standing like business people, thinking like business people, talking like business people. Um, I used to think we were at the bottom of the food chain and we got called at the same time as they were ordering catering. Um, and I've had some meetings where it's pretty clear that we got called at the same time they ordered the burgers. Um, but, you know, I, I was in the room and, and chatting to people and suddenly it was kind of, they, they asked an interpreting question to a guy on the stage and he said how to do it and said, but I'm not an expert. Oh, okay. Um, I think historically we've gotten so used to, um, it's a, it, it's, the, it's kind of like the son of the conduit model. We've gotten so used to this, is, this is our little bit, you know, we, we, we delineate our space with the booth and we say, this is our bit, this is what we do. And okay, we can do that. And if you're in a strong market, there's no reason why you can't. But if we start saying, well, where else can our expertise make a difference? Where else can our knowledge make a difference? And just go to stuff and see who's interested. Um, and I was surprised. I was asked to speak at a, a business networking conference in Edinburgh. And the first question I got from someone was, I didn't realize interpreting was actually interesting. <laughs> Thanks. But it shows you, you know, there is, maybe Germany is such a mature market, but it's different. But in the UK, suddenly people are going, how do we do this? You know, uh, what are the basics of, oh, I need this in Swedish. How do I get this in Swedish? Well, yeah, but that's just a... a hmm. But could it be that this is a UK-specific issue? I mean, I don't want to get into the whole everybody speaks English and you know. no, I think it's just a client-specific issue because you get those you get those inquiries like all the time that somebody just has no idea of what's going on. They're calling you. They're like, "Okay, we need like a synchronous translation for our event, and like, have we have the agenda? Do you need anything else? Yeah, we need to we need, like the tech. We need this. We need this." And they're like, "Okay, you educate the client in those instances." But that happens to everyone. Like not all the time, but pretty regularly. So I think that's pretty much the norm. Like that's not an unusual situation. So I I don't know. I mean I I don't think I'm very. I mean the whole thing about us being so far down the food chain. I just said because of the whole you being put on the panel situation. I just don't think that we're at that level of importance that they would put us up there. And that's not me, you know, mm. saying anything or fishing for anything. I'm just. I, I'm stating this very factually in my mind, but I'm also not saying that my responsibilities stop by the booth. You know, I I find for myself that I have a very clear understanding of my place in the events and in my interaction with the clients. Sometimes it's purely transactional, 
they've already booked everything. They know exactly what they need from me. I go there, I do my job, I leave because the rest is smooth sailing. Sometimes the client needs more handholding. Sometimes I need to take over because I'm organizing the equipment and the teams and then I need to brief the teams and then I need to brief the client about the teams and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think there's various levels of responsibilities and of involvement that is required from our end. And I think it's up to us to understand and read the situation and and know what we need to provide in the interpreting space. I think that's the thing is that I'm beginning to, maybe it's just a PhD has gone to my brain. But, um, <laughs> when I did the PhD, one of the things that, that struck me was that there is far more expertise in the interpreting space and oh, he said it he got me we have far more knowledge and expertise than we give ourselves credit for yeah and that i agree yeah the, the interesting thing is if we start asking okay where else is this knowledge useful it could be that we that our, that our kind of responsibility begins and ends with begins and ends with client comes to us says can you find two two lithuanian interpreters for tuesday fine but there could also be a place where one of the things I find in my PhD is that it's possible for clients to see interpreters as their partners on the journey to achieving what they're trying to achieve. And when you start thinking, okay, well, that's possible, but what, what does that look like? What does that mean for us as interpreters? What does that mean for the way that we think? And I think, you know, often some of the questions that we take as simple could actually be quite complicated. So the question of um, a client saying, at what point in the buying journey, you know, if, I, if I'm trying to export product, at what point do I need an interpreter? Well, that's a good question. Then there's, um, so the, there is an argument and it's quite possibly valid. And there was a guy talking about it at the export forum saying that he uses interpreters to help him build a relationship and then switches to pure English once he's got the relationship built. Mm. I thought that's interesting. That's a really, really interesting way of doing it. Um, I've also heard of other occasions where they only call in the interpreters when they think the meeting's going to get nasty. Good. Yeah, good for them. <laughs> Which is a very mm. clever, mm. a very clever strategy. And then I had one the the meeting where I helped a British business seal a multi million pound deal. It's frustrating. I wish I could name who it was and what the deal because it was an amazing deal that they got. One and two has. Well, the, the French buyer said at the top of the meeting, and this really played with my brain, he said, in French, I could do this in English, but I don't want to. And then at the end of the meeting, after he'd shaken my hand and kind of said I was amazing, the CEO of the British company said, you know, I understood everything the guy said. I just didn't understand what was going on. Mm. So I had two, by their own admission, bilinguals out of four people in the room went up to six at one point. But, you know, two, the two key people in the room are self-confessed bilinguals and they've got an interpreter there. I'll go out on a limb and say that this happens a lot more often than people realize or admit the whole yeah. thing. You know, I, I understand all the words, but I have no idea, you know, what kind of dynamics are going on in the room. But then it's like the CEO came up to me at the end after saying that, he, where he said, we couldn't have done it without you. He said, I understood everything. He said, I didn't, didn't understand what was going on. And then mm. he said, I now understand what interpreters do. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. So one of the meetings in my career where I intervened most clearly, suddenly he says, now I understand what interpreters do. So what's he understood? Yeah. And this is my thought is that if we could, we, we have 
historically, for good reason, straight-jacketed herself into what researchers call the conduit model, which is language comes in, language goes out, we don't change anything in between. Yeah. But I think fair enough. Yeah. But yeah. That's probably related to how conferences used to work. And I mean, you said earlier that the traditional conference, the whole model is maybe disintegrating and most of it is probably for the better, but that also changes the role of the interpreter. Um, And I just wanted to say, like, from a working in an institution point of view, we we are so highly specialized. So we we have a unit for sort of the running week that does all the planning. Then we have a unit who do all the long-term planning. Then we have a unit who organizes all meetings outside of Brussels and organizes the travel. And, you know, and then we have a unit that does, you know, all the documentation and meeting documents. And I think that kind of, that that also very much limits the role of the interpreter. And then you, you really start, you know, really start accepting to be confined to that role. Whereas sometimes there would be occasions when you probably should break out of that role and intervene a bit more actively. And then, I sometimes do that, and usually, it, so far, it's always worked out very well, and it's had it, it sort of has made the meeting more efficient, maybe even shorter. Um, you know, just just yeah, things that like like the things you said, where you try to not steer the meeting, but sort of manage the the conversation to make it go more efficiently. I guess. Well, the the one in that case for me was I intervened the clearest I've ever done in my entire career. They were both discussing something and it was clear that they were using the same word quality and qualité, pretty much calcs, but meaning completely opposite things. Now you've got two bilinguals and various other monolinguals around the room, (laughs) not failing to understand each other, but saying the same word. Not at all unusual in any meeting. And suddenly I get this light bulb moment where I go, I'm the only person here who's figured out what's going on because they're obviously still having the argument and I know <laughs> yeah. why they're having the argument. I also know that if they knew why they were having the argument, they would stop having it. So I did the classic. I said something like, um, excuse me, the interpreter believes there's been a misunderstanding. May I explain? Did the same French. Explain to both sides. They went, oh. And the te- monolingual technical director said, oh, is that all it is? I can get those numbers in five minutes. And we went back to the negotiating room after having one of those pounding down the corridor moments. Went back to the negotiating room. The guy flips open his laptop and says, is that what you want? And the French guy says, we, and two hours later, they signed signed the pre-contract. That's not the interpreting we're told to do, but I'm sorry, if you see that happening and you don't do Mm -hmm. anything about it, it feels unethical to me. And and this that one decision, I mean, I've written about it and talked about it so many times and I'm still going to keep on doing it because it made me realize that the, the interpreter it always has mm. access to privileged information that even untrained bilinguals don't have access to. So that the British CEO was hearing qualité, 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 and he's not picking up. The French guy's hearing quality, quality, quality. He's not picking up. So hold on a minute, and, and this, this has started me down the road of, you know, we necessarily, to do our jobs, pick up stuff that other people aren't looking for. And how often, I, it's been once, that was a once in my career moment, but it made me wonder how often does the interpreter not know that the little thing that they've picked up just to do their job is, is the key or it is important? And it's made me now think, well, what else do we know 
that clients could do with knowing. And it's not necessarily, you know, we're not ever going to tell someone their secret information or whatever, but we know things about, you know, we know what happens to a meeting if you schedule the finance talk at half four. We know well, that. everybody knows that, but they still not do ne- it. But not necessarily. We also know what happens to a meeting, for example, and I'm sure the institutions know this very well, if you have voting and no one's briefed the chair to allow 10 seconds so that mm. everyone votes at the right time. Yeah. yeah, but Jonathan, these are all professional event people. Like if they organize a conference in a way that the finance guy is at 4.30 or if at the institution you don't have scheduled enough time for the voting, it's not nece- It's not our job to say, hey guys, this isn't going to work. They need to figure that stuff out themselves. And they're not always professional mm-hmm. event people in the UK. Often it's companies doing stuff themselves. And that's fine too, but it's yeah. their event organizing that it's stuff. It's tricky, I would, Do you know what I mean? Like, if like if I feel like it's it's a, it's a it's a very thin line you're walking here because like how would you feel if you were in the booth and then one of the company people came in and said, oh, I don't like the way that you're holding the microphone or that you're talking into the microphone. Do it like this because it's better. Like it might be good if they're actually giving you terminology because that's just a special term they use. Uh, like your dumper, I will never forget that now for the rest of my life. That's obviously very handy information, but yeah. you don't want somebody to come in and like tell you how to do your job. And I know this is over the top and it's not what you were saying, but it's a very thin line between being helpful and overstepping. And I, I feel I, like it's, it's difficult. I, I would say the line is the line is the line of request. So if, for example, you get the call and you say, can you go to Inverness on Friday? Then, then that's what you do. You do that. You make sure you get the documentation. You go and deliver, and they've not asked you to do anything more. So unless you're being right. asked to or paid to do anything more, you don't. It, but that's the thing. Yeah. If, on the other hand, the client says, and I think it's a service that could be of interest to clients, can you give us your advice on helping this work? Then I think, by all means, go and do it. But the line has to be the line of, have you been asked? If you haven't been asked, you shut up. If you have been asked, then you have the door and you answer the question that they've asked you. You don't go, you know, and well, we're here, the lighting sucks. No, 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 you don't do that. But if the client says, we'd like your advice, in the UK often it's businesses who aren't used to running events or whatever, they might say, you know, we're, we're bringing these French people over. We've not brought French people. We've not, this is our first time exporting or whatever. What do you think we need to know to make this work? There should be like a checklist that we just send them. In fact, I'm going to make one. Or they might say, no maybe they should have. I'm sorry, but no client has ever asked me that. Yeah. Not a hmm. single client has ever asked that question. Yeah. Maybe they should have. But again, they didn't ask me that question ever. And I feel like this is all a very hypothetical scenario. And I also don't agree with if they don't ask, you don't say anything. Because there's oftentimes been the case where I actually had to correct something in the meeting where they were going to yeah. plan like a Q&A session. I was like, no, you need microphones. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Otherwise, there will be no interpretation. You know, like, there are certain things where you have to step up and speak up, even if you're not asked. And I feel like this is just a very, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And I feel like there is untapped business potential out there for us with our competencies that we have, both as, uh, both as language professionals, as an event experts. But I feel like it's a very hypothetical situation that, that you're kind of, I don't know, like you're running, you're, you're like jumping into, you're kind of like putting, what's the, what's the, the, the phrase? You're putting the first step, the second step before the first or the something along those lines? The car for the horse. Yes, that's it. So I used to think this was purely hypothetical. 
Um, in fact, I'd, I'd never even dreamed of this, and it wasn't until all of this has come out of two things. One, it's come out of watching um, a non-profit organization suddenly ask their interpreters about stuff and talk about how their organization grew because I was interviewing some of the leaders and they said, you know, we, we've started, we grew because we went to our interpreters and said, we don't know how to do this bit. How do we do it? Which I think is really interesting. It was an NGO that did that. And then talking to, being around business people and being at these export forums, being at meeting forums and finding out that actually what seems hypothetical at the moment, my argument is most of it is hypothetical because we've never seen, we've never looked for it. Um, when, when I went to especially kind of business events, meeting meeting industry events are different because they are experts and they really should know. But on the other hand, when you talk to businesses, you're like, well, they, they, they didn't even know that existed. I went to a, the number of business events, and this still shocks me, 95% of the business people and the events managers that I've talked to have said to me, you're the first interpreter we've ever met. Dang, that hurts. And then when I do talk to people who've met interpreters before, it's been a case of we didn't realize we could ask you stuff. Um, we do have, and I think that there is, it's cracking now, but we do have a bit of a, an image issue that certain clients seem to take the view that we're unapproachable. Um, I, I think in the UK, maybe that, that's changed a bit. But what, um, we did a, a job up in Inverness and the clients were amazed that a problem happened and we solved it and they went, oh, you, you managed to fix that. And suddenly there's a, when you're in the position of not just a service provider, but a possible expert that they could ask if they want to, then suddenly the hypothetical becomes real. And I had a client say, my very first consulting job, the client, very first paid consulting job, I should say, because I've done consulting work on paid before, the client said, how do I, things like, how do I know I'm getting the right equipment? And stuff that, that we would think of and that a consultant interpreter would do, but some clients wouldn't even know that they could ask us that because all they know is that we've, we're the people in the booths. Is, mm. it, is it hypothetical because clients are never going to ask that? Or is it hypothetical because we've never been brave enough to say we're available to give this advice? Yeah, so... I mean, we talked about this thing that I think is related to this because it, it seems like we're not going to agree or I don't know on on this one, or maybe it's just more of a of a brainstorming which which could be useful as well. But yeah. we said well, earlier that the traditional one. conference doesn't really work all that well anymore, and there's several things to that. So it's the finance guy in the graveyard slot, or you know, it's the death by a thousand powerpoints and that kind of thing. So I'm wondering because you. you and I think you you mentioned that you had similar things that you see people trying out different formats for events and you know trying trying out things like bringing in the audience through live streaming or tools like Slido and, and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if that no, I'm not wondering if that changes the game for us. It does change the game for us because I sometimes sit in conferences when they have breakout sessions or or group work. Um, and there's nothing for us to do, you know. I mean, that's nice. You you get to relax, but then that's not what we're there for. And I'm wondering if maybe there's a a space for us to explore where we can be helpful with the skills that we have. 
What are you seeing, Alex, in, in Germany? What are you Because a lot of stuff is fa still fairly traditional that I've seen here. Are you seeing these new formats crop up in, in Germany quite a lot? Not really. Most of the stuff is still a regular conference. Like, to be honest, like death by a thousand PowerPoints. No, and I feel like I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Like, it's that's the bulk of the work. Um, breakout sessions happen tons and tons and tons and what they what usually happens is that either the, the the foreign language group will stay in the room where the booth is or they will have like what does that mean language clean groups as we call them um so like the english group will be with the english group the german group with the german group the french with the french and then they come back and then they present their findings the results, and then everything yeah. is going to be translated again yeah their findings exactly. I, I just saw language clean men in the one swore <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, new event types are cropping up, but I don't think, I don't know. Maybe I've just gotten too used to all the different crap that we do because we do a lot of stuff. Like we do like press conferences, which are one thing. I do like live streams, which are another thing. I do these traditional types of events. I do events with breakup session, breakup, breakout <laughs> sessions, no breakup <laughs> sessions. Nobody breaks up at these events. Best case scenario, I do like workshops on trucks. I do workshops in like factories. So I don't know. I mean, there's a ton of different things. But in terms of like really new event types, I mean, there's a bar camp, but I've mm. never interpreted a bar camp in my life. There's the, the the silent disco type thing that I've explained earlier. But to be honest, like I've only seen that twice and I've only interpreted it once. So I think everybody's trying to do something new, but the only thing that they can come up with is stuff like Slido or is like somebody Skyping in on the big screen in front of the entire audience because it's super cool. And also they didn't want to play for travel expenses. So I don't really think that there are any super new event types that are popping up. And if they are, I just haven't seen them. I don't know. I, I think in the UK, we seem to be suddenly from the the most recent jobs that I've had people have rediscovered mm -hmm. the power of workshopping and in a sense that should make things easier for us where it becomes difficult is if they say let's split into four groups and you've got three languages in each group and you suddenly go yeah exactly how are we going to make this work um um and there Again, I hate to come back to the consultant interpreter thing, but there, there it'd be good to know in advance. So we'll go, I tell you what, you're going to split into three groups. It's too much to get like. There was one conference I had where they had an interpreting team of 16 because they had workshops. And I'm not kidding. On average, we were on shift about 40% of the day. Hmm. And I didn't, I didn't think of it as a time because I'm like, great, I'm getting paid a full day for 40%. But now I think, you know, some of these work it's a shame though isn't it it's a shame and actually yeah. there's an argument that some of those workshops they could have actually just piped someone in remotely okay they couldn't at the time because the technology sucked but you know if they were to do that again i'm like is that the kind of case where you think we only you know we only need so we we've got these workshops we're going to have interpreters 40 percent of the time is there more of a case to say right let's just have a chat about lining it up in such a way that you get you know the plenaries done and the the full QA session done by interpreters there, and you do the workshops by remote interpreters because why you know if you're hiring sixteen interpreters and they're active forty percent of the time, it just feels not right. 
um, you know, is that a case where they should have just gone, you know what, we're going to get, um, we're, we're going to get Kudo in or we're going to get someone else in and they're going to do that. You know, is that, maybe there are new meeting types where we need to start looking at blended interpreting and having a team with in-person and remote. And But it, it's the, the only big thing I've seen is, is the workshop revolution. Um, and yeah, I think that's, work at workshops and working groups seem to be the, the big thing at the moment. Um, and I think that's where we might need to look at, can we be a bit more mm. creative? Yeah, so maybe we could just... Uh... We could just be the moderator next time <laughs> because, you know, very often you will have a mixed group and you'll have, you know, maybe they and maybe they all speak English, but there's going to be an Italian who needs to speak English and a French who needs to speak English and is a Spaniard. And then maybe we have a few skills that we can bring to bear in a con context like that. But I, that's definitely, I suppose, outside of most interpreters' comfort zone. <laughs> Well, the, the other question for me is, is there a need for, because Alex, you were saying you've done live streams. I've done like one, maybe two in my career and suddenly realizing there's actually a different kind of, there's a different atmosphere when you do that. So the last one I did was, it was live streamed. It was broadcast in the room, obviously. Um, I was playing Pivo because the Chinese booth were relying on me and it was recorded mm. and transcribed at the same time. That sounds like fun. Yeah, and, and it, the transcription makes me look like the best interpreter ever. If you could just ignore the video and read <laughs> the transcription, I'd be totally happy. But, I mean, even there it was an interview, and I don't know about anyone else, but mm. when I've got an interview and they're both speaking the same language, I tag them with the person's name so the audience know who's speaking because mm. I'm really bad at putting on voices. <laughs> I'd be the worst ventriloquist. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll say like, you know, Fred says, da, 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 because otherwise yeah. they have no idea who's speaking. Um, but the, there's a skill to making a live stream not sound like a funeral. <laughs> well, it depends on the speaker, doesn't it? I mean, you're just going with the flow. Oh, please don't. If someone could teach me how to deal with <laughs> slow speakers, I would be very, very grateful. Patience, young Padawan. Apart from like Patience. Joel. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, did somebody do a Star Wars marathon? <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> it, at least, at least it was French, so I heard the verb. <laughs> Fair enough. We, have you ever waited for the object of a sentence in French? Have you ever waited for the no at the end of a very long German sentence? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sometimes I should have waited longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I, so, so I was schooled that, you know, you you should never have an audible pause in the booth. Oh. <laughs> but when, oh, please. But when, seriously, our, our inter-French teacher would really hammer us for audible, well, would really push us to not do audible pauses. Uh, nonsense. But when you have this guy who's going, ma, ce que je veux dire, c'est que... And you're like, who is this person that told you to never pause pauses in the booth? <laughs> who are like, they? Who are no, they? No, we, were, we, were told, we were told silent pauses are fine, oh. but ums and ahs and uhs make you sound like you don't know what you're doing. Oh, right, so, like hesitation but, yeah, pauses. Audible no, no. pauses were stamped hmm. out. Silent pauses were completely fine. Yeah, yeah, And, okay. and annoyingly, the tape, the tape of my last live stream is online. And, like, I know where it a is. A big chunk of it. <laughs> yes. 
I had a bad day at the office. I'm so ashamed. If it, if it had been good, I would have been tempted to ask if I could blast it, like put it on my website. But it was just a horrible day. It's not that bad. It was just a horrible shift. Come on. I'm like, oh, I just can't stand that performance. It was, I don't like it. I much prefer, you, you, know, the, you know those days when you get a speaker that you love and you just fly. Uh, I, I had a couple, like the same event, like, a year previously, I had like my dream twenty-five minute plenary, and I was like, "I'm the boss." So, Alex, how does it work with you guys? Like, do you guys ever get recorded, and do you ever get to listen to your own uh, crimes? Oh, what? <laughs> what? Your own crimes. crimes. <laughs> um, no, not as often as the Parliament. I mean, in the Parliament, all the plenaries are live streamed, of course, and that that's. Including the different language tracks, obviously. Yeah, with the interpretation. Yeah. And there's a big disclaimer on the website that it's, quote-unquote, just the interpretation. It's not a live transcript. It's not the same as the official minutes and so on mm, and so forth. Mm. And yet, there have been complaints in the past, of course, from individual MEPs and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, we do, we do the occasional live stream. The commission sometimes does, like, big conferences with, uh, you know, consultations or where, where they invite speakers and, and the interested stakeholders and, and people like that. Um, so it doesn't happen too often, yeah, but from time to time. And sometimes the the funny thing about it is that you're pretty sure that no one in the room is listening to German, but since there's web streaming, you have to work nonetheless because there might be people listening yeah, to German on the web stream. I am going to find one of these web streams. <laughs> I actually sometimes publish them on Twitter because I think it could, could be interesting for people to listen in and um yeah. how we do that but i think it's less frequent at the commission compared to the parliament T talking about because we're kind of talking about the future and what stuff we could do do you see what do you see as the big changes coming up for institutional interpreting well remote is a big change so uh there's probably going to be more of it um and it's i mean after the discussion we've just had it seems to me like these new meeting formats whatever you would subsume under that umbrella term seem to be a bigger deal for us than they are for, well, it's certainly on the German market, what one Alex said, uh, because we do quite a bit of that. So the, the commission is is very much trying to, at least for events where, yeah, again, stakeholders or the, the, the public are involved, they're trying to move away from the traditional conference with somebody standing in front, speaking to PowerPoint slides and so on. They're trying to have more interactive group work and breakout sessions and uh, you know, sketch noting and stuff like that, Slido. Um, so there's a big trend. Slido yeah, is pretty big. There's a big yeah. trend for that in the, and there are other solutions out there. We should point out there's Mentimeter and so on. So not like we're, we're pushing Slido here, but it seems to be a bigger trend <laughs> in the institutions, it seems. So Alex, gee, what are the trends coming up? Because I think in the UK trends are difficult to forecast, but I think we're having to be more, more aware of the, companies are to get business and um, what are you seeing a similar trend in germany or are you seeing something completely different is anything changing <laughs> because it didn't sound like that from what you said earlier so yeah it's basically yeah i mean i don't know i guess it's just kind of also like the munich market is a pretty cushy market to be in just because we're pretty remote haha from from the rest of the country and you have all those big companies and car manufacturers and suppliers you know it's Interpreters. I I don't know. I I can't speak for everybody. I haven't seen a huge shift in my own business in the last two three years. 
Um, I know we were just at the AGM, at the Falcon D AGM, and, and obviously remote was a big topic. Some people have said that they almost get daily requests, but then it turns out they were talking about telephone. For remote. Yeah, but then it turns out that they were talking about telephone interpreting. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's not, let's not even get into that. It's still distance interpreting. <laughs> it's still distance interpreting, but... It's audio. It's, it's just a very exhausting conversation if everybody gets i just wish and maybe we can get onto that uh yeah we should actually do that like i feel like we should provide a troublesome terps remote interpreting terminology and then we make that the official terminology of the world because <laughs> i find it incredibly exhausting if people keep talking about remote interpreting and they and you will have five people talking about remote interpreting and everybody thinks remote interpreting is something different. Just tell them to read the AIC study. There's a, a complete terminology in there and it's very simple. I know, but honestly, it's it's just very exhausting to have that conversation. I know. I know. Um, yeah, but for me, like, it's just not coming. Like, I've had two serious inquiries about remote interpreting yeah. and... They both decided not to go for it because I told them, listen, I'm not going to be liable for nothing. It's all your fault. And they were like, oh, actually, we've thought of something else. Yeah. Thank you. So, I don't know. But another big thing that's that's happening at the moment is, or that's been happening, I think, for a couple of years already, is the whole move to paperless, paper smart, or whatever you want to call it, uh, which is probably <laughs> the complete opposite of a big deal in the private market. <laughs> But it's it's a huge deal in the. I mean, it's nice to have. Just the other day, like literally on Friday, we were at a at, a, at an event where they were changing. I mean, this happens all the time, but they were changing the presentation like five minutes before they actually went on stage, and they were like, "We're going to print it for you guys. And we're going to give it to you while we're holding it, but you can't. Like, we can't send it to you right now. It's too big. Whatever. Blah blah blah." And they had the hotel. That makes no sense. Like this super <laughs> yeah. whatever. I know. I, but you can't. They were like no super sense. stressed. They were super stressed. We were sitting right next to the, right. To the screen. We wouldn't have needed this, but it, it's a nice thing. They tried. So they had the hotel printed to us. They had the concierge come in and give it to us. And then he was saying, our printer was malfunctioning. Here's the 90-page PowerPoint. But it's neither sorted nor stapled. Yeah, so we were sitting in there. Useful. And then while I was interpreting, my colleague was like literally like going through the papers trying to <laughs> render it. And I was like... On the edge of a nervous breakdown. Painless thing. Ever. So yeah, paperless is, is great if you can get it. See, this is where I've done some work for the the wood industry. <laughs> and th th this is where, so if you do like the environmental investigation, I can't remember what, it's really annoying because I had the term in my head because I had to know it for a few meetings. Um, but if you do like the kind of, I've got the French, the English for bilan, I just cannot find it at the moment. But if you look at the, the environmental footprint, that footprint, yeah, thank you. If you look at the footprint from beginning to end, the wood industry actually has is needing in Europe. The wood industry is needing carbon neutrality. Mm -hmm. So long as you recycle your paper, the cloud computing industry is nowhere near. Yeah, well, and, yeah, and and so this whole paperless to save the environment thing is like actually, unless you're going to count the ink in and then even then blah blah. Actually, the most environmentally friendly thing to do is to print everything on um, forestry EU forestry approved paper, mm. because then we know where it's come from. The forests are being managed. The more paper we use, the bigger the forests get. The more CO two they they take in. Yeah, I think that the whole actually you're better yeah, with the, paper. The whole <laughs> environmental angle on this doesn't work because since the dawn of computer, well, or si since the 
sort of mainstreaming of computers, people print more than ever. So I think that's that's kind of a moot point. Um, yeah. But it, certainly inside the institutions, the bigger argument, I mean, environment is some part of the argument, but the bigger part actually is just hassle and having to print out, sort, organize, transport, the whole logistics of moving paper around is is the bigger deal. So it seems. Yeah, but again, also, I think like you guys are printing way more than we do. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, like, that, was, mean... that was funny because the way you just put it is that you said that paperless would basically be your dream, whereas what I meant was the complete opposite of that is that people are, or some people are very reluctant to move away from paper. <laughs> I mean, I do like paper. Like we have these supervisory board meetings that we do like once a quarter and they always give us one folder with all the printed documents. And it's just very handy because we put it in between us. We can take notes on it. Mm. So that's nice. Like I don't need to be fully paperless, but I find like oftentimes when people really, really try to give you the paper, I'm like, you know what? Don't don't try so hard. Just send it to me. Like that's fine too. So I don't know. Yeah. So I, I must admit, we have a habit when I work with my usual booth mate, there's one thing that we always print out. We always print out the agenda. The agenda and blue yeah. tack it to the booth. Yeah. Have you ever tried blue tacking a tablet to the booth wall? It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We don't have blue tack. How can you be an interpreter and not have blue tack and a bajillion pens in your bag? Well, I have a bajillion pens in my bag, which is kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I never necessary. take blue tack, yeah, and I can never take them out. Maybe I should. But, yeah, we just don't have blue tack. We're like it just doesn't exist. So, so we, or at least I haven't seen it yet. Maybe. So my my booth mate always arrives with blue tack. I always arrive with like dental anesthetic throat sweets. They should totally sponsor us. I mean, all of those companies, blue tack, the lozenges. They really should. Sponsorship with Tyrosettes. I'm actually, I'm, I was actually wondering about like inside interpreting, should I look for sponsorship? And you know, what would it be like to have, you know, this interpreting YouTube, YouTube video was sponsored by Tyrosettes for when your throat isn't working anymore. Yeah. What? You can always ask. Yeah. But yes, I mean, it's interesting because if you talk, if you look around Twitter and you, you go around the interpreting space, Everyone seems to be saying, you know, if you don't change now, you're going to be left behind and the future is now. And we've hyped ourselves up. And in reality, the biggest change seems to be we need to remember that we're businesses in the private market and the business. I mean, it seems like oddly we're seeing more technological shift in the institutional market than we are in the private market. And I wonder if, is there a danger that we interpreters have gotten so hyped up about, we need to change, we need to change the futures now, that actually we're getting all overexcited for nothing or not much? (laughs) Possibly. Well, but the thing is, I also think that in the institutional market, it's easier to kind of... Maybe streamline those changes is the wrong wrong thing. But I think it's, <laughs> no, but I think it's easier. Like I think it's easier in the European Union, for example, to do more things via remote interpreting because, you know, like, I remember like that whole study where you guys had like this whole remote suite set up for like the dinners, and then they put like the the screens, and you guys could like do the little uh, camera movements and all that stuff. It's just easier because like it's their building; like they can do whatever they want. You guys can say what you need. Oh, okay. Whereas like in the private market, like you have to negotiate with every single client individually every single time. And I feel like if it's been the process of negotiation and until you actually end up at a point where it works might be longer for, for the institutions because it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of players. But I think once you've gotten to a point, like it's just established and it kind of 
like the train just kind of chugs along. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Let's wrap things up at this point. <laughs> I was talking to an interpreter recently and they were going, don't you just love language puzzles and the solving thing? And I'm like, no, I like getting results for clients. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, I really can't stand crosswords. I think you, you broke his heart right there. <laughs> It's super safe, let me tell you. Like, nothing ever happened. The only time something started burning in the student accommodation was when somebody tried to light fake snow on fire to make it look like um, like raggedy, cobweb-type, you know, like dirty stuff. No. No, you haven't. Ooh, good for you. <laughs> Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Okay, off you go. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Take care. <laughs>